0: Continue on this morning. And uh, you know what? I think I forgot something here. I think we're all working that way today for some strange reason. Ah, now that I got your attention, that's how you do it, right? (laughs) I forgot. Well, you know what? We have been really watching an unfolding drama been looking at a pageant just moving before our eyes. It's like a, a running story, and it's, it's moving. It's moving right along. Of course, we started with uh, at the birth of Christ, and whenever He was 12 years old, and then His baptism, and of course His temptation, and His ministry started, and here we have this, it just builds and builds and builds up. And we uh, really, we trace the story of God when we look at the Bible. and Of course, the heart of it all is Jesus, right? Jesus Christ is the very center. He puts Himself on display. Whenever He came here to earth, He really put Himself on display where eyes could actually see Him physically and hear Him and, and touch Him. Most of what is recorded about Christ as far as His living here on earth was really His ministry years. And that's right where we're at. That's where we're focusing on as we go through the book of Luke. And uh, as He started His ministry, we see that it grows tremendously. Uh, Some people like what He's doing and many others don't. But at first, the ones who need Him physically sure need Him, and they find out. Now, you remember in the previous verses, Uh, We started with Jesus going up the mountain and He went up the mountain to pray, right? Then we took a few weeks showing why He was praying. It was praying for the apostles that He was going to choose. And so we went and looked at their characteristics, kind of like their makeup, their raw material that they were given by God. These guys are going to be the ones who represent Jesus Christ here on earth after He... Ascended to heaven. And he leaves them a great message, a message called the gospel. And they are responsible for getting this gospel across to the people in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Quite a responsibility as it was. So Jesus trained them. And so uh, now we see that he has picked the apostles. They're going to walk down a little bit, and they're going to approach people that are there. A lot of people, multitudes, thousands of people, as they come down from the area where they were at. This is one of the he starts with one of the most famous messages ever. Everybody has heard of the Beatitudes people who are Christians, non-Christians alike, other religions have heard of the Beatitudes, the Blessed Ours. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It is a beautiful, beautiful sermon. It's the most precious sermon that one can imagine, and yet we have a few brief verses here before that starts, and we're going to get into it today a little bit, this sermon, but... Uh, most of it is going to be focusing on this little summary of what happened before the sermon that uh, Jesus gave. Now it's kind of interesting. you look at that summary and it's actually in verse 17 through 19 of chapter six. You look at it, you'll see there are, uh, it's not really any particular incident. There are really not any particular statements here uh, that Jesus will bring forth. It doesn't record any specific miracle. You know, his teaching and his miracles are brought forth there, and that is the focus of it. But there aren't any particular words that we see him in a dialogue here. But it is a summary of his whole ministry. It's a summary of everything that he has done and is going to do here while he's here. So it's quite a glimpse of Christ. We get a super picture of him here, it's like a still photo. You get to study it a little bit before the action really starts again. And what we want to do today is ponder on this because this is how great He is. I mean, this is magnificent. This is our Lord. This is our Savior here we're going to look at. And we should be in awe. This should draw us to like, wow, this is Him. You know, We don't want to take it for granted. So when you look at those verses, I think... It would be easy to say, uh, for one like me, of saying, okay, let's breeze, breeze through those, everybody knows this, and let's go right to the Beatitudes. But we can't do that, because there's something important here, and it will help us then see the validity of why He's done what He's done, and then what He's going to say next as the apostles are with Him. Now, I want you to think on these tremendous crowds. Most of you have been to uh, let's say uh, I like baseball. Most of you have been to a baseball game,' I've been inside the stadium there. Some of you just like a week ago. <laughs> Huge crowd, right? We're talking, you know, like close to 50,000 people, just jam-packed in there. And you go, "Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah there were people there. It was, it was crowded. And there are that many people, plus more and more that who aren't there at this time, that just followed him. They were following him already. He was famous. But then the first year, he was very famous. And and I want you to think of the mighty power that he had as he did miracles. He healed the sick, cast demons out. What amazing power he had. Think on that. You know it. You know it already. And think of the mighty speaker that he must have been. Without speakers, <laughs> no amplification that day. The Sermon on the Mount is considered to be somewhere uh, close to the right at Sea of Galilee. There's a there's kind of a hill there. It's a natural amphitheater. Some say that you know the the you know the words that he speaks are going to be heard by thousands of people. Of course, they try to get as close as they can to him. We know that, we know that uh, they want to hear Him too. He is the orator of the ages. Amen. Nobody had ever spoke like this man ever. And I never have since then. He is the orator of all orators of all ages. He spoke truths that no one ever has done. He's our Lord. He is the wonder of wonders. Do you have wonder and awe about Christ this morning? We should have because that's why we're here. Uh, nothing else. It's about him. So his wonder and his just magnificence that he is should make us dwell on have our thoughts dwell on him for adoring and praising. That's that's what we want to do. That's what we want to have focused. That's all the time, isn't it? So what we want to emphasize today is that He marched down from the mountain. still a mountain area or a mount. We see Jesus teaching His apostles, but He's going to teach them with just thousands around at that time. He just... Chose the apostles. Now there are other disciples and they came from all over to see this Jesus. That's an amazing thing. You guys came from all over central Missouri to praise Jesus today. To worship Him and be in awe of Him and hear about Him. It's not Him speaking. Can you imagine hearing Him speak and seeing Him in person? So let's grab our Bibles. Jesus is the Word, so what happens? Even though we don't see Him, and let's stand, even though we don't see Him, even though we don't hear Him, yet by faith we know that this Word right here is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word. And the power of the Holy Spirit then projects out of what's on our pages into our minds, and we go, wow! This is Him. So it's, it's just as powerful today and maybe somewhat more powerful because the Holy Spirit is in us and we get to understand what all was going on. And we get to see it spiritually here what was happening and hear the words of Christ. It starts off like this in 6.17. Jesus came down with them, the apostles, stood on a level place, And there was a large crowd of His disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch Him for power was coming from Him and healing them all. And turning His gaze toward His disciples, He began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, You have just given us a lot to be able to chew and to munch on here today. May it be the very bread of life your Word is even more precious than bread, physical bread, anything else that we can get. Your Word is truth. It is what works on our minds and our spirits. And Lord, help us get the awe and the majesty and the wonder that we need here of this Jesus who really existed and exists today right here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We go to chapter 6, verse 17. First one is dealing with the fame. The fame that Jesus had. We all know about fame, and seem like most people want to be famous. Oh, Jesus is the famous one. If anybody is famous, it is him. And the first thing that Luke really wants us to see here is how extremely popular Jesus was very popular, very famous. In chapter 5, verse 15, just back a chapter, it says, but the news about Him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear Him and to be healed with their sicknesses. By the way, that verse 16 says, but Jesus Himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray, to the mountains and pray, because of the crowds. He would never have had any privacy. He had to sneak away to get away because they were following Him everywhere. So He would go to the places, and believe me, He knew where they were at. <laughs> where He could get away and pray to the Father, get some rest. It was constant. And you can imagine that constant being around people and doing what He did had to wear Him out. He's a human here. He's God, but He's man. And physically, he would get tired. He needed sleep too. And of course, we saw him uh, sleep in a boat before, right? So he did sleep. He had to have that. But the news about him is really growing. Extremely. It it has a momentum right now. It's mounting. Matter of fact, it's unequaled. There has never been one person had this kind of, I guess you could say, being famous like he did because of the things that he did. Yeah, there's been a lot of popular people. Of course, you can immediately think of Billy Graham, and of course he went all over the world and he preached in stadiums. Those were tremendous crowds, you know. And other people, you know, have done that and everything. But this Jesus has an unequal popularity because He's the focus of everything anyway, isn't He? Uh, But we can understand why Jesus would uh, often go away to a place and why He went up to that high place up in the mountains somewhere so He could choose the the apostles. Because it's important. Now He's coming down. His apostles are messengers. His apostles are messengers that are going to go into all the known world. They are messengers of the King. That's what the apostles really were. They had a news to get spread out to the people. Had to tell about the the gospel. And uh, uh, apostala is dealing with sent ones. Apostello. Ones who are sent, ones sent forth, sent away, sent out to preach. So really, their messengers or what are they? They are preachers. What are preachers? They're proclaimers. They proclaim truth. So we learn from the very best preacher of all time. The apostles are learning from the best preacher, the preacher, Jesus Christ. So, the apostles are really the first group that, that really are here. There are, there are three kinds of groups. So one of them uh, are the, uh, is the apostles. They come down from the mountain. They've gotten the special call. It says here in Luke, they came down with them. In verse 17, Jesus did. He stood on a level place. Now, this is known as the Sermon on the Mount as we get into verse 20 and thereon. Uh, and there's quite a discussion on whether this is the same one that you see in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And that's interesting because it's very similar to it, although in Luke it's much shorter. Matthew has three full big chapters. But you remember, Matthew wrote to who? He wrote to the Jews. He wrote about the King and their Messiah that was prophesied. And so really, even though it gets out to the Gentiles and everybody else, first of all, he focused and he proved by their Scriptures and by their law that he was the Messiah. Luke represents uh, really writing to the Gentiles as he would be a Gentile. And so he wrote to what things that they would understand. So there are things that are dealing with the law and Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that the people outside of Judaism would not know. Does that make sense? So it's very possible. Whatever Luke recorded was perfect because he's inspired by God's Spirit, but he gets to the points that he needs to get to these guys. And he probably spoke this message that we're going to be studying for the next few weeks. He probably spoke that message many times. As he went all throughout Israel. There's probably no doubt about that. Maybe said it in different ways and such. Uh, or, but I, I like to think that this is the same one that's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It doesn't matter. Uh, if you turn to Matthew 5, 1, by the way, when we study the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. We'll probably go back to Matthew quite a bit, but in Matthew five one, it says when Jesus saw the crowds, okay, he's been up in the mountains, he's got the apostles. It says he went up on the mountain. Now the thing is, is that sounds really kind of uh, like it's doubting about the Sermon on the Mount because, it, or, or in Luke, it says that he what came down from the mountain, right? Came down with them. But when you see a mountain, of course there can be other mounts. There can be a mount in mountains or on a mountain. What he's going to do is find a up in the mountains where he where they're at. But yet at the same time, he's lower. It's probably around the Sea of Galilee if that be the case here, and they have a traditional site where Jesus probably stood or close to that area. And it's, but it's a level place. On this, on a mount, possibly, if that's if want to call it, Sermon on the Mount, it says he went up on the mountain, or he went up on this mount, finds this level place. It's probably because he sees the crowds. He had come down from where he is at, but now he's at a, a different place, but a, a, on a mount where he can be seen, and his voice is going to be heard. It has to be a perfect spot. He had to have a tremendously loud. Voice too, you know, for that to get out to the people, as he was a speaker. That's why I always think of uh, somebody like uh, Whitfield. George Whitfield would speak to literally thousands of people. Some one time, I think in Philadelphia, there was a crowd of like twenty-five thousand people there. And of course, this is this is written down, you know, and it's it's written in books, and this really happened. And uh, so that's history. And he actually was able to speak. And of course, Benjamin Franklin was there at the time. And so he started walking down the street. And he walked and he walked way past the crowds. And he could still hear Whitfield's voice. Man, can you imagine being at the front of the crowd? (laughs) People are backing up. Back up blocks, right? He's still just shouting it out. Well, he was especially gifted. And there are certain people like that. They call them leather lungs. Audrey, when you were at the ball game last week, did you ever hear some people with a loud voice where everybody in the stadium can hear them? There's always that one guy, you know what I mean? And he's saying stuff, you go, man, I wish he'd shut up. Hopefully he's, he's rooting for the Cardinals if you're in Busch Stadium. If he's a Cub fan doing that, I'm afraid he might be in trouble. I don't know. Anyway. This is a location This is where the famous sermon probably is done. You're at Capernaum or near Capernaum. This actually is a place we already had familiarity with because Peter, Andrew, James, John, they were all from around that area living there. And so it's that area, you think of the Sea of Galilee and you think of the mountains, they had it all right there. And uh, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, he's on a level place. It's not a slope. It's a place where He's going to be able to stand. People can get to Him. And He's going to position Himself in the perfect spot because He's going to stand there for hours. Hours. He preached and healed multitudes. Matter of fact, it said that He healed them all. If you've got thousands of people, how many sick people do you have? Especially at that time. Probably close to a majority of them. At least half of them. So now we get into the crowd aspect. He stood on a level place and there was a large crowd of His disciples. Now, we spoke about the first group. That's the apostles. They're there. They've been around. They've been following. And now they are official. They are ones who Jesus is going to train personally, intimately. But there are other disciples now. These were the ones that were not chosen to be apostles, but they are disciples, and it's matetas, it means to be a learner. They're learners of Jesus. Now, the number is not given here, except it says uh, a large crowd of his disciples. A large, the word is mega. And of course, that is popular in our language today, uh, you know, mega, megaton. Uh, you know, it can mean thousands and thousands. It can be thousands and thousands of disciples. You remember when he fed the 5,000? That means plus, that, that's men, plus their wives, plus their children. And now we're getting up to literally thousands, right? That was just one occasion. Constant. When you see these crowds, you see this, this mega, large crowd. That's what's happening. This is the second group after you have the apostles, their learners, their students. They've been, some of them and have already been following Jesus, the regular followers of Jesus. And they come from all places, all over the land, all over Israel even up further north. And here it even mentions it. Uh, There's a a great throng, which we'll get to in that third group. But they're coming from everywhere. And there are some of them that are just beginning to grasp what He's saying. They've gotten a little bit of the the tip of the iceberg. There are some that don't understand it at all, but they're following Him. And some had repented of their sin. Some had confessed it, and they embraced the truth of Christ. They were forgiven by God. So you got some believers, some that are just checking it out for the first time, and then others are others that believe for a while, and then Jesus says something they don't like, and they take off. That's what happens. Jesus always forewarned about that, that this, this will be. They became negative about Jesus. Some disappear. If you look in John 6, verse 64, John 6, feeding of the 5,000. Next day, he starts explaining what all that meant, and a lot of people didn't like what he had to say about what that really meant. They were there because they wanted to be fed. Because what a miracle. Wouldn't that be cool? We're going to follow Him all the time now because He feeds people out of almost nothing. Right? Verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. He's speaking to disciples here, not the apostles, but also there are apostles in this group. And there's one who will not believe in the most intimate group. And we looked at him last week, that's Judas. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. So there is multiplicity of people who they were who would not believe and who it was that would betray Him even, even Judas so he 's liked by so many people, they start learning what he 's talking about it 's asking too much he 's gone to the loony bin you know whatever, and they leave it says verse sixty six as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore Then Jesus said to the twelve you don 't want to go away also, do you?" <laughs> And of course, Peter says, no, Lord, You have the words of eternal life. What was it he said in verse 65? He was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him from the Father. He's saying a lot of things here. He's even talking about election here. And he's he's talking about you have to, you have to eat of Me, partake of Me, all of Me. You have to forget the cross. Or, or, or forget yourselves, take up the cross. they were forgetting the cross. Forget yourselves, take up the cross and follow me. Some of these statements were finally sinking into people and they're going, "hmm no, I, I don't want it. I'm going back home. So it's a mixed multitude. All kinds of levels of people of understanding, it, it includes the real people, the real Christians. That would be the wheat. And in the parable, Jesus spoke about the tares. There are people who are not real. People that are just learning about Him. So if we look in John 2.23, we know that Jesus did signs, did wonders at a Passover. In verse 23, He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. Many believed in His name. Oh, wow, great! How many? Who knows? Hundreds? Thousands? Why? They observed his signs, which he was doing. Well, that's good. That He did signs, and there's a reason why he did it. But what were they really observing? What he could do physically, what they could see. We live by faith and not by sight. But Jesus, on His part, was not entrusting Himself to them. Here we go. For He knew all men. And because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man. So He knew who the believers were and who weren't. He said, yeah, they believed there. Yeah, they believed in His name. Yeah, they believed what He did. They even believed what He said. But there was never any change. There wasn't anything done in his heart. And so that's the idea. You can be a you can believe and not be a Christian. You can believe and not go to eternal life. You can believe everything about him. But if he's not in your life, if he's not in your heart. So Jesus knew who those fake disciples were. And he knew who the ones who were true, that were genuine. And so not all disciples are true believers. That's And so Jesus speaks about that so much. And the parables, the wheat and the tares and such. Now, the, how many groups have we looked at already? We looked at the apostles. We looked at this crowd, a large crowd, a mega crowd. That's what the word is in the Greek for large. Mega. There's one more group. And this is where you get an interesting crew of people And it's a great throng of people. Again, who knows how many thousands of them are there. Jesus must have picked the perfect place to be where people could see Him and hear Him. You know what I mean? I keep thinking about that. And He had to do it because of these huge crowds. Otherwise, there would be people that would be standing way back and they can't see Him. Anyway, there are people... They had come, uh, see, uh, we're still in 17. They were a great throng of people. The word there is laos, and we get our English word laity from that. People, laity. When you hear laity, what do you think? of? Well, a lot of times you think of church, you think of church leaders and then the laity. The laity were known as the people of the church. They are the, uh, the regular people. They're not apostles. They're not disciples even. They're people here. And they're wondering what is going on. I mean, the news is getting around. It spreads real quick. Of course, they didn't have the media that we do, but I'll tell you what, when you get news about healings and the way that He spoke, it's going to bring the crowds. He doesn't have to go out advertising. He's just out there preaching, and the people start, they gather around and then they start following him. These people are from everywhere. Notice why they came. Verse 18 They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. They came. They're from everywhere. They came to be healed of their diseases. They stayed for the preaching. <laughs> he healed. They came for the miracles. stayed for the sermon. You know what? There is a pretty good point to that because if people can see that at first, if they're just getting to know you, it's not exactly what you say, but it's what you do. That's what attracts people. That's what attracted people to the Christian Gospel. They, they heard the Gospel, believe me, but they were drawn because of what was happening. They, you know If they see Christ living in us, if they see the power of a transformed life, that can make an impact on some people, can't it? So we have a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, that would indicate Jews really, wouldn't it? And, they are not only Jews in this great throng of people, but from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. The Phoenicians, the ancient Phoenicians lived there. What kind of religion did they have? Did they have the one true God? Of course not. They had a lot of gods. And, They've heard about this too. So they want to check it out. Um, Tyre was once a great city, and of course you think of mariners, uh, the guys on the ships and such. Many of them came from there, and that's what that area was known for. Um, They were known as pagans pagan generation lived there. Oh, yeah, there were some Jewish people that lived there in, in those cities, but really they were characterized as being very corrupt and worthless. Uh, they were descendants of the ancient Phoenicians and had been kind of handed down, so the Jews didn't look at those people as even being Jewish. Uh, they might have had some Jewish blood. and You can think of the idolatry involved. The immorality is unspeakable. And these people are coming to see this Jesus. And you know what? Some of them are going to be saved. These are idolaters. Now, now it's easy to say, yeah, Jerusalem, Judea, but Tyre and Sidon, they're coming there? We don't go to those people. It's the way the Jews would think. But you know what? The appeal of Jesus does not have any limits whatsoever. Because we're all in the same boat. We're in a dark world. And so you have those people who are pagans, and then you have the people who are very literate. When When you say Jerusalem and Judea, you're talking about people who were educated there. They made fun of the Galileans. Of course the Galileans are there because that's where we're at. That's where this sermon is being preached at. So, The pagans of all people are there along with the religious Jews who are sinners and dead in their transgressions also. The people who came from the south, Judea and Jerusalem, traveled a long way to get there. You know, when we read this, and whenever I read it, I'm guilty. I think, okay, they just got there. Yeah, well, they just didn't hop in a car and pop up there and get there in an hour. This was a long, long walk take days. And when people would do that, they wouldn't take their whole family, they would leave their family, they would leave their jobs, they'd leave everything to see what this man was going to say and do. They followed Him. That's why they're called disciples. So you have the apostles who were disciples, now apostles, you have the disciples who follow Him. And then you have this great throng of people, so that's why we're dividing this up it kind of gives you a division if you're in the crowd of disciples and been following me and you start looking around you're going these guys aren't from around here mm-hmm. yeah, and the way they dressed the way they looked those guys are pagans and it's like, I wonder if Jesus will do anything about them <laughs> hike them out of here you know, make them disappear yeah. I, I imagine the tons of the sons of thunder would have loved it. Get those pagans out of here. right? They don't belong to us. Well, anyway, in that group, that's Jerusalem and Judea, you know who those people are? They're priests, Pharisees, they're rabbis, they're lawyers, they're literate teachers, leaders in that crowd. say, so how do you know that? turn back to 5:17 uh, one day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the lord was present for him to perform healing to these religious elite they couldn't deny it it was seen See, they couldn't live by faith. They They had to see it. But even when they saw it, it didn't do anything. By the way, healings, miracles, signs, great still doesn't save. It's the Word of God that saves. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's how it comes. But God uses that and we'll see that he has great compassion. Jesus has tremendous power. He didn't have to do this, but he did. But it all, what does it do? It backs up what he says and, and, and you know anybody can say anything. But he shows that he's legitimate by the power that he has. So that's why he does what he does here. think we're ready for number two. The power of Christ. Verse 18 and 19. They had come to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch Him for power was coming from Him and healing them all. This is the preeminent work of His ministry as He uh, goes there. They came to hear Him. He came, first, he came there to, to teach and preach divine truth. That was really the purpose of everything that He did while He came here to preach this truth. It's, and to get to the mind. He wants to get to that mind. You know, minds, our brains, have the capacity to be able to understand things. And when the Spirit of God is working with that, then we can understand the things of God. But it's amazing that God gives a mind and that we're able to think things through. So what can save is this truth. And that's how important that it gets through their brains to their hearts. And a belief in the truth. It has to be preached and it has to be believed. The feature of His ministry then is what? Teaching. His preaching and His teaching is the good news. It's the good news of the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. He preached it everywhere He went. No matter where He went, that's what He always did. He preached the truth. Would you say that truth is the priority? Would you say we have a premium on truth when we have the Word of God? In this nation, Truth seems to have subsided to wasteland. It seems that truth doesn't matter. And that's politically, economically, socially, educationally. In every avenue it seems like you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, and we're all in this together and everybody be happy. You know, it doesn't matter. We're, we, we are all right. There are no wrongs. You know what? The good news of the eternal life says that it's only Jesus. Jesus is the only way. And He's the one who offers peace and joy. The good news of heaven. Forgiveness of sin. The truth is the priority. He knew everything there was to know. (laughs) There's never been a speaker that knew everything. And Jesus knew everything. He knows everything. That's one I want to listen to, right? He was the truth of God, and is the truth of God, but at that time, the truth of God incarnate. Walking around, when you see Him, you'd say, there is the truth. Him. It's all embodied in Him. He he was perfect in everything. He had perfect knowledge. Perfect knowledge of the reality there. He had perfect... Use of the language to be able to get through to people and the the parables that he would use he had perfect use of that to be able to get through that they would know that it was clear and concise. He had perfect use of emotions it 's got to be emotion whenever you speak and teach he wasn 't just like monotone. Here we are today i 'm glad we 're at the sea of Galilee now we are going to do the Sermon on the Mount. You know, immediately people go, I'm out of here. You know, Jesus must have been filled with emotion that is balanced with this truth and the love that, it, that it came right. You know, the, the words of Jesus is just uh, amazing. It, it penetrated, it captivated people that kept coming and more and more just kept coming. It got huge. It was profound. And yet, the simple could understand what He was saying. Isn't that amazing about God's Word? Even the youngest, the, littlest, the little child can understand. And the student of Christ, for years, can understand. They see the profoundness and the depth that is behind that. Uh, let's look in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine concerning conforming to godliness, what is he? He's conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions on and on disputes about words, but what is that? if he doesn't agree with Christ and His Word and His truth, he's conceited and he understands nothing. That's the way it is. If one doesn't agree with Christ, he is the only way. If he's not the only way and not the truth, we really are wasting our time here. Let's fly out of the doors. Let's get out of here. And let's go and do whatever we want to do. And that's the way it is. There's really only two camps. Either you really love Christ and you want to follow Him and you give everything, or really you don't really listen to Him. You don't agree with Him. Your life doesn't conform with that. And most people out there, they don't have an interest in Christ whatsoever, do they? You know, They're conceited. They understand nothing. So that shows you why our values and our belief system that we have is being confronted by the world today that is so offensive to God's holiness. And you see it and you hear it every day. And you see it in the media. And of course you see it all over the the Internet and the social medias. You, You see such a hatred of the people of Christ. Really... They hate Christ. They have their own definition of Christ. He is love. And then they come out and condemn the very words that you just spoke that would be something that honors Christ. You ever had that? Yeah, every one of you have had that. We are confronted by a wicked, evil society. And we have the truth. But they're very conceited. They don't understand it. But we would pray that this Word would penetrate into their hearts and that they would love to follow Christ too. Right? So we have the knowledge of what true love is. We care for their souls. and So that's what our motivation is. Well, he not only spoke the Word of God and had his truth there, but it says that he... Healed. Amazing. We don't take this for granted at all, right? He healed their diseases. Cast out demons. People are just thronging around Him and He's healing them all. I I find that staggering. He had power over the physical realm. He not only had the power over the minds that he can get truth to them, but he had power over the physical realm. The power over the mind, the power over the body. It says in verse 18 that he taught these people to hear him, and he healed their diseases. He healed them, healed them all. And starting in chapter 4, there were incredible miracles. Great miracle accounts that we were reading in chapter 4. They were just going on in mass, Just constantly going on. Everybody. All. Thousands. Thousands. They were coming to Him. When somebody had an eye that didn't see, or eyes, gave them sight. They couldn't hear. Had a problem with the ear. Give them a new ear. Had trouble with their skin. Had leprosy. He'd give them skin like a baby. When they had abdominal organs that were dried up or shriveled, He would give them new organs. When they had dried up, withered hands, arms, legs, no legs, He'd give them legs. He'd give them arms. I'm talking, folks, this is out of the ordinary. It's for all to see. He didn't do this in a back alley. He didn't do this where nobody saw it but Him and whoever was being healed. Everybody, the thousands saw this. This is a witness. This is written down in history. Why can't people hear about this? They can't believe it. They don't want to believe it. He had the power to make the body whole. He had the power to make the mind whole. Nobody has ever done that. He was God. He was truth. He was the truth of God preaching with the very power of God. Truth and power comes along. How can anyone deny that? We live by faith. If you're in the Word of God, you experience that power every day. When you need those promises, you've got to go to the promises and get your mind focused where it needs to be, right? We all need that, don't we? You know, it's one thing to be tormented in your body. You know, when your arms don't work, your legs don't work sometimes. Sometimes they do, but it's not very good. Your eyes don't seem to work very good, you know... Ears don't work too good. But it's another thing. You know, it's one thing to be physically well, and we appreciate that. But the very minions of Satan were all over the land. There were many people, many, 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 who knows how many were possessed by Satan and the demons. It was a demonic realm that he came into. When he left, they were cast out. We've already read about Jesus casting them out. We know about that. You know, in chapter 4, there's a real dramatic account about a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Jesus cast that demon out of there. He could clean the soul, couldn't He? That's what He did. So, He has power over the mind, power over the body, power over the soul no new age thinker and speaker today, and they don't even call them new age anymore, but those guys have already arrived. And they think they have a package on the truth handing out no absolutes. And here it is. This man right here proved everything who he was. Proved his deity. He gave a preview of the kingdom where eventually when, when, when you get to the kingdom you're going to have people that are Healed instantly. No more of that. And His compassion is there. So when you see these kind of miracles, all of those are involved. The deity of Christ, the preview of the kingdom and, and compassion of Christ. Now we go to verse 20. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes started. And that's all we're going to do today. We're just going to get started. And I knew that's as far as we get. Like I said, Matthew recorded this sermon. He gave more words. But really it's the same flow. It starts with blessed are the poor in spirit. Ends up with the foundation. They're both about salvation. It's a sermon about salvation. It's the most definitive sermon that Jesus preached when we can take it apart and see it in its whole, and then go in to see uh, each part. When He spoke about the kingdom, He gave the laws and the principles of the kingdom. By the way, the kingdom is... Take it in two ways. There's the kingdom now where we are in the kingdom of, of God. The kingdom of Christ, spiritually. The kingdom now and the kingdom that is to come. And that is physically where we will have new bodies and there will be uh, the situation where we are not in the situation that we're in today. We look to that, don't we? Mm -hmm. So the kingdom now and the kingdom to come. He's preaching a kingdom now, but he's also will preach a kingdom to come. But His kingdom is saying, I'm inviting you into eternal life, into this kingdom now where you have the presence of Christ in your life. It's eternal life. What He did in the Sermon on the Mount, He just ripped the religious people apart. He tore down the foundations of what they were standing on. And He brought forth the truth of the Gospel of the Good News. It's the glory of Jesus Christ it's not a sermon about ethics. People like that, unbelievers, like to use a sermon on the mountain. The blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Oh, it sounds so good. What do those words really mean? What was Jesus speaking about? He's speaking about salvation. You know that they need to discern their spiritual condition. When he preaches a message like this it was riveting and i can i can imagine that huge throngs of people out of those throngs of people they just started walking away whenever he started saying things that was very convicting he did that's the way he spoke it was to get to their hearts wasn't it not so they would just have knowledge, but it would get into spiritual salvation. They would see their spiritual condition. It's how they related to God. You guys are people, all you are people here today that have an interest to God or about His word. that's why you came. If you didn't have an interest in His word, why would you come, right? Why would you come? It's how you're related to God. That's why we're here. How do we relate to what He's saying here? So to the, to the disciples, that's that crowd of disciples He came down to. He's directing His teaching right at them. Of course, it's going to go to all the other ones too, but in verse 20, He fixed His gaze. Look at this. He tur- and turning His gaze toward His disciples. This would be more than the apostles. These are the ones who've been following Him. Some of them don't know what He's really been saying. They don't understand the cost of following Him. And so He's going to start breaking it down. Gives us great sermon. He directs His teaching to these learners. That's what disciples are. Purpose of the sermon. If you Drop down to chapter 6, verse 47. He said this, Everyone who comes to Me and hears My words and acts on them, I'll show you whom He's like." That's where He says He's like a man building a house, dug deep, laid a foundation on the rock. When a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house, could not shake it because it had been well built. These are the people that have a foundation. What's the foundation? It's Christ. They're on Him. They have a firm rock. How firm a foundation. That's Christ. That's why He says what He says. That's why He does what He does. That's the purpose of the sermon. And he starts off with, as he began to say, blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed. Blessed are the the ones who hear His Word and do it. Remember what we read in verse 47? That's what all this was about. They're all going to hear it, but what about the ones who do it or don't do it, right? You're either on a rock or you're on sand. What happens to building a house on sand when the storm comes? Right. So that's, that's His idea. Have your life built on the foundation. This is a blessing of poverty, folks. <laughs> And I'll explain that and then we'll have to cut here in a moment. Isn't that a paradox? Blessed are the poor. That's very paradoxical. The blessings of poverty. What are you saying, Dennis? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and he has a great book dealing with this Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. Boy, get a chance to read it. Do it. It's quite a treat. He explains this. He says, this one right here is the key to all that follows. This first, blessed are you who are poor. It explains the whole Sermon on the Mount. Matter of fact, it explains salvation. Why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh-huh. That's why they're blessed. Blessed. You get the kingdom, he's saying here. You're the heirs of God, the co-heirs of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus Christ own? Everything. What's the kingdom? Everything. Possessions. Eternal life. Forgiveness. Grace. Mercy. Joy. Hope. Security. Comfort. Peace. Righteousness. In the presence of Christ always. In the presence of God's people. All that is yours. Blessed are the poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, the word is makarios for blessed. It means happy. Now, in the English, that's what it is. Now, I'm not going to leave it at that. It's much more than happy. But by the time it gets converted to English, it, it's happy are. And, and that's true. Happy, happy that is. It speaks of somebody who is in the most beneficial condition. And he starts off with the poor. And who are the poor? The patukas. It's it's, uh, one who owns nothing. He's one who is bankrupt. Um, The literal language was that they cower and they cringe like a beggar. They're like beggars. They cower, they cringe, they put their hand up. He's giving us a visual here of what it is to be poor. Someone who is reduced to begging. Reduced to humiliation. The person cringes and cowers. That's, that's a picture of this word here. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones also said, Without this, you cannot enter the kingdom of God without being poor. Now, just to make sure that you know that I'm not saying, hey, we need to sell everything, get rid of everything, get rid of what we sell, and get the money, and get that rid of also, and just be poor. (laughs) And you know that's not what we're saying. And we know the Bible is not saying that, but just to prove it, go to Proverbs 30. This is a right attitude on riches and having nothing. Two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may not not be full and deny you and say who is the Lord, or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. There is our balance. Lord, give me what I need. Matter of fact, He even teaches them how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 of Matthew. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. What all we need, Lord, that's what I, I ask of You. And thank You. Really, it's for us. We more or less say thank You, Lord, for granting the, the air that we breathe today, the water we have drank, the food that we have eaten, um, the, the nice comfortable home that we woke up in this morning and nice comfortable car to drive I mean it goes on and on and on doesn't it? And those are things that we really don't have to have the water, the food, the air, shelter, clothes, you know those things are pretty well needed aren't they? but we take those for granted. But those people did it day by day. Some of them didn't know where their food would be at the end of the day. If they would have food, that's why they would go out and work if they could and stand in line and they might get chosen to work that day. Remember in the parables? And if they did, that was enough to be able to buy bread. The daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. I basically say thank You, Lord, for the food that You have given us and constantly keep giving us. So, God doesn't bless people because they're poor financially. You know, That's a statement of fact, right? The poor are not blessed in that matter. And not all the poor people, by just being poor, are going to receive the kingdom of God you don 't get converted by being in poverty, so it 's not talking about that. So what is it talking about well, he 's talking about spiritually poor. He gives us a sermon on and it 's dealing with spiritual truths. Lloyd Jones says it 's the poverty of spirit, poverty of your souls it 's being bankrupt. John MacArthur has always used that term, and so now for over 30 years, that's usually how I determine, determine this word "Blessed are the poor." And that really rang true to me when I first heard it, it. Being bankrupt, spiritually. What does that mean? I can go to the bank all I want, but there's nothing there. I'm bankrupt. It's gone. Matter of fact, let's extend it out. It means you have nothing. Everything is gone. and you're blessed? What do you mean? <laughs> Jones said this, the way to become poor in spirit is to look at God. Mm-hmm. To look at God. Peter, whenever he saw that it was Jesus, that great amount of fish, boats sinking everything, Peter is saying, this can't be, and he goes, it is. Lord, depart from... From me, for I am a sinful man. This is what we're talking about. Peter had nothing to offer God. That's when you're blessed, when you realize you have nothing. That's where it all starts. You have nothing. No matter how much truth and things you've heard and how much religion you have in life until you get to that point of saying... It's all God. It's not me. I cannot bring anything to Him. It's impossible. I can't do anything spiritually. I have no resources. Do you remember Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah chapter 6? Woe is me. Whenever he saw the holiness of God, woe is me. This is the prophet Isaiah. Wow! Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. Woe is me. Jesus, depart from me. I'm a sinner. That is when we're blessed. When we realize that. Everything else is self-righteousness. Everything else is works. I did something. No matter how much human goodness people have, and there's a lot of goodness that people have, But it means nothing for salvation unless they come this way. Not only do you have nothing, but you have no capability to earn anything. You can say, Well, I have nothing, but I can I can start working my way there. You have no capability to to do it. Ephesians two chapter two verse one says that you are dead in your sins. You're nothing. You're not only nothing, you are what? You're dead. This is what Jesus started with, folks. Whenever he's with the apostles, I'm wondering if maybe Peter's over there saying, Oh no, this crowd is just going to leave. You know, they're all going to depart out of here in a hurry. This man's nuts. That's what he starts off with. You're all sinners. But you're blessed if you realize that you are sinners. That you're shameful, that you're despicable. You can't even look up. You're a beggar. You cover your face, you put your hands up. Uh, how, how's it been illustrated? The lepers. Leprosy? They weren't even to be close to people who didn't have leprosy. And they were supposed to, you know, if they were getting close, what were they supposed to say? Unclean. Unclean, unclean, that is a picture of sinful. A real picture of sinful. That's the way we all are. We're there. That's That was all of us before we knew Christ. We were beggars. There was nothing we could earn or do to earn His favor. Right? This is basic to us. We talk about this all the time. Um, look in Luke 4.18. Jesus in the synagogue, Nazareth, speaking in His hometown, reads from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Are we getting an idea who the poor are? He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. Is he speaking spiritual things here? Well, of course, physical things are in the matter, but his whole desire here is that people would be saved. There's a spiritual saving that has to happen to set free those who are oppressed. So the oppressed, the blind, the captives, the what? The poor. That's where Jesus starts this Sermon on the Mount with His apostles being right there with Him and the disciples there and the throngs of crowds. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about this, no more perfect statement of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Are you going to find this than this beatitude right here? Says this is every, everything. This is what starts it all. You have to have this. One to come to Christ has to, first of all, what? Know their sin. What does the good news start with? The bad news. That they've sinned against a holy God. It's always been that way Old Testament, New Testament. The good news says you're a sinner, you need God. You need Jesus Christ to take your place to pay for that sin so that you can stand righteous before a holy God. And that's the only way you can get into the kingdom of God. That's the Gospel. Well, that takes humility, doesn't it? I did nothing. Well, yeah, 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 but I, I made a decision for Christ. Well, maybe you did, but you know what? How did you do that? That's what Sproul always said. Yes, You make a decision. But how do you make a decision when you're dead? When you're bankrupt, you have nothing to offer God. It's all God, isn't it? And when that happens, and when we realize that the floor that we've been standing on just crumbles, and we realize, I can offer nothing to God. I have nothing. I am nothing. And we ask God to fill up by grace and mercy. Those who are the spiritually poor are the ones who are blessed because they've seen where they're really at. Salvation, my friends, is a gift of God. It's called grace. And we have to remember those songs we sang this morning one after another about the grace of God. You're blessed when you understand that you're poor and you're saved by grace and grace alone. Amen, right? And, rich. and that's when you're rich in Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let's pray. Father, great God, holy You are, thanks for coming to lost sinners who really hated You didn't really like the ultimate way that you say it is or had no idea, basically, of who you are, what you're about. We say thank you for the Gospel. The Gospel of the grace. The glory of God. The face of Jesus Christ. We stand in awe of you because those who have trusted in the person of Christ to get all the way to the kingdom. And we believe that wholeheartedly, Lord. It humbles us. And yet it also lifts us up to the highest of heights because You have brought us to the heavenlies. And help us have this Gospel go out from us, from our mouths, giving people the truth that comes from this Word of God that they need a Savior. And nothing they can do can get there you. Lord, the gospel is simple, but it's so profound in what you have given. Lord, as we continue on with the Sermon on the Mountain, as we study it, may it bring sobering truths to us, and may it give us uplifting views of you. We are amazed. We are in awe. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next week, uh, I think we have...